0: For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, this beautiful Thursday morning in Washington, D.C., we are on Capitol Hill with the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy. These are worker cooperatives. They're having their conference uh, starting today on Capitol Hill, and then on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there will be in Baltimore, Maryland. We have in our presence Ricardo Nunez, Judith Turner, and Maria Williford. Maria, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start off with... Ricardo, Ricardo, what are you involved in in terms of worker cooperatives and what brought you to worker cooperatives?
1: Thanks. So what am I involved in? I'm here representing two different organizations. Uh, one is the host of the conference, the uh, Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy, the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. And uh, I'm on the board. I'm the board president. And we are actually a member elected board. The U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives is the only grassroots membership based organization in the United States representing um, worker cooperatives, democratic workplaces, and co-op developers. And, um, yeah, we're actually at the conference. We're going to be holding our elections for at-large board members, and then hopefully I'll be uh, still on the board after that. I will be on the board after that. I'm going to be up for election next year. But uh, I'm also here representing the Sustainable Economies Law Center, and we're based in Oakland, California, but we work nationally. And we are a nonprofit law center that provides research, education, advice, and advocacy for just and resilient economies. So not only around worker cooperatives, but also creating healthy, just local food systems, doing work around energy democracy, and uh, also how can we create um, sustainable spaces and livelihoods for our communities. So you're an attorney? I am actually a legal apprentice. So in California, it's one of the last states there's about 4 states where you can you don't have to go to law school at all to become an attorney so I uh, have a supervising attorney who I um, an apprentice am an apprentice under, and uh, I'll be taking the bar next year. And we've oh, actually, fantastic. yeah, we've already had three um, folks on staff uh, who have become attorneys this way, and we're spreading the good word you know, across <laughs> California and across the United States that there's alternatives to going $150,000 into and debt. debt if you want to do community-based uh, <clears throat> legal
0: work. Fantastic! So, yeah. Thanks for being on the show with me today, and we're going to turn to Judith Turner. Yeah. With the same question, how did you get, what are you doing here, Mm -hmm. and where are you from?
2: Let's see, I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm representing Florida Cooperative Empowered Economic Development, which is a mouthful, so we refer to it as Florida Seed. We are a cooperative business development center, and we are here uh, presenting on a youth co-op that we organized and formed.
0: What does the
2: youth co-op do? Uh, that is any business that is owned and operated by uh, youth under the age of 18. So in the state of Florida, we don't have a statute limiting how old you can be to own a business. So we are taking advantage of that and implementing youth co-ops uh, wherever we can find the support to do so. Fantastic. And we're working from a model based out of Puerto Rico, which is La Liga de Cooperativa so they have youth co-ops in every single school in in Puerto Rico and we're we're taking their curriculum and their concept and bringing it to Florida.
0: It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to hear more about that and you're presenting at the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy. Yes. This
2: yes, we are. We're presenting on the story of how we did it. I met uh, someone at an ACE conference, which is Association of Cooperative Educators, two years ago. I met a presenter at La Liga who ended up, um, we started to build a bridge, and we're going to tell the story of how we built that bridge and put that program in Florida.
0: Good. I want to be there because I like the idea of having these Co-ops in high school. That's, yes. Yeah,
2: great. Many good reasons for that.
0: And Maria Williford, what about you? How did you come here and what are you doing?
3: Yeah, um, well, I'm here representing Root Volume Cooperative. Uh, we're a landscape, ecological landscape design and construction company based out of Oakland. We started back in 2017. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of the company. And we have um, grown with the support of the Arizmendi Mendy Association of Cooperatives, which is one of the more successful developers out on the West Coast. They've done six bakeries so far. Six bakeries? Six bakery, worker-owned bakeries. Okay. And uh, my company is the first venture into businesses outside of uh, bakeries.
0: So baking and landscaping. Okay. (laughs) And construction
3: as well. Okay. (laughs) Yes.
0: Well, thank you guys for for being here this morning. I am looking forward to this conversation and the conference in Baltimore this weekend. So let me just start off by talking about there's four basic types of co-ops for everybody out there. If the co-op is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op, and that's what we're talking about mostly here today. But uh, so any business you can think of, whether it's bakeries or construction or landscape design or anything, IBM, they all could be a worker-owned co-op if the, if the workers owned and controlled the business. And then if the if the uh, business is controlled by The people that buy the services or use the products of the services called a consumer cooperative. And most people don't know that credit unions are a consumer cooperative. They're owned by the people that deposit their monies and have checking accounts. Uh, Housing co-ops are another example of consumer co-ops. And there is a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that's owned and controlled by the patients. And that's a consumer cooperative. So now you go to what I normally think about farmers. Farmers grow stuff. And so they have to buy things in order to grow whatever they're growing. And so they they get together and they do purchasing co-ops. So they can buy in volume and get get a better quality product, and they can form a business whose the people in that business are only looking to buy these products. So they become experts, that the farmers perhaps could not become experts in getting quality and better contracts and so forth. And now I'm beginning to see more artists using this This form is purchasing co-ops. They may buy a building together where they can practice if they're if they're musicians where they couldn't do by themselves. And there's a artist worker cooperative in Pittsburgh where people come together. They are artists and they can they can produce their things together. And they can the the other side of that is a marketing co-op where again farmers, artists, and other people come together to market their products in in locations they couldn't do as individual farmers or individual artists. Uh, like this place in Pittsburgh, they have a storefront where these ladies come together with whatever they produce, whether it it's clothes or jewelry or wood carvings or whatever they may produce, and they have a storefront that individual artists could not afford that rent. But coming together, they can do this, and they produce it. Ocean spray, land of lakes, Organic Valley. Sunkist, Organic Valley. These are all producer or marketing co-ops. Those are the two names that they normally come in. So those are the four types, and today we're focused on those businesses that are owned and controlled by the employees, worker co-ops. So who would like to start off talking about your worker co-ops, or whether it's a youth co-op or – no, before that, how did you get involved in co-ops? What's your history? Who wants to start that one first?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Okay. Um, Thank you, Ricardo. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I got into uh, cooperatives when I actually um, I joined the Peace Corps, and I was uh, in um, Zambia for two and a half years, and I was supposed to be doing rural education development, so teacher training, teacher monitoring. When I got to the village, the... Um, I was being introduced, and I said, I'm supposed to be here to do teacher training, but I want to be here to serve the community, so what do you want me to do with you? Um, and a group of women stood up and said, we want to start a women's cooperative. And I said, great, I'll help, I'll help you start that, and you I don't know say, what that you is. Say, what is it? <laughs> okay. So over the next uh, yeah, two and a half years, I saw the transformation of these women's lives um, through cooperative economics and cooperative organizing and just saw that previously they didn't have any Um, Power of Purse at Home. The men always controlled the money, Um, so now they were able to um, spend the money on things for household goods, on their children's education. They were able to um, actually, through coming together to run these businesses because they would start these micro enterprises, they actually started to have a collective voice to um, have basically political pressure in their communities to advocate for themselves um, in village politics. And so, over two and a half years, I saw the power of cooperatives. And when I came back to the states, I was looking for spaces to build worker power, and um, found my way into the worker co-op scene in, in Los Angeles. And then uh, came, went up to to the Bay Area to join the Sustainable Economies Law Center. So that's that's sort of a capsule So summary. you saw
0: people change their whole lives, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, in their position in the community. That's right. Yeah. How, did you ever know how they knew about worker co-ops? Did women wanted to start one? How did they learn?
1: Yeah, about in Zambia and a lot of other countries outside of the United States, cooperatives are seen as a force for, for economic development, and so they're supported by the government. So the women really um, found out about cooperatives because the government provided um, incentives, financial incentives, as well as others other types of incentives for cooperatives to get started. So once you became an official women's cooperative in Zambia, then you'd be eligible for subsidized fertilizer. These were all subsistence farmers, so they were able to access the, the, subsist, um, the subsidized fertilizer. There, we also had conferences, so these people who would literally not leave a few miles. Um, radius from where they lived were now able to travel around the country and join with other women um, to talk about cooperatives and, and empowerment for themselves and their communities. So it was really government um, support and just a general sense of um, in the communities that cooperatives were a thing um, that they should organize around if they wanted to, to change
0: their lives. So did you ever use the fifth principle of co-ops? I mean, that's education, training, and information. Oh, yeah. Because you went over there about education. Mm-hmm. So you learned about co-ops. Could, could you come back and circle around with the education piece? Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: And, yeah, I mean, and that's a, a lot of um, what we did there was to training and education for the women's cooperatives on, like, how to um, manage their Bookkeeping and accounting and run their meetings and those types of things and i was learning as much from them as as i was and that um, when,
0: when you're yeah, teaching you yeah exactly yeah.
1: and then when i came back to the states i i tried to br- bring it back here those lessons that i learned
0: so that reminds me of dane pauline green was the president of international cooperative alliance that's mm-hmm. the large international co-op group and she said that Co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity. Mm -hmm. And that's what I heard you talking about, that they're subsistence farmers. They didn't have a lot of money and very little say-so being women in a village in Zambia. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to get a lot of control through this cooperative model. That's right. So... Let's go to Judith. How did you get involved in this?
2: Oh, well, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. I'm a licensed building contractor, and I have set up shop around the country. I set up a business in New York City, San Francisco, Colorado, and I finally landed in Florida. So I've had my own contracting firm. How did you do that at 30 years old? Uh, well, you know, I had an art degree and I couldn't type and I was in New York and, you know, like, it just made sense to everyone for me to become a contractor. Okay. I'm originally from Wisconsin, everybody thought I had a trusting face and they gave me their keys and like, before you know it, uh, my subs helped train me to a great extent, although I'm, I'm, I'm certified in building, but, you know, they helped me learn their trades as well. So I had mm-hmm. a good comprehensive understanding, much the way Ricardo is getting his education it was through the help of others um so in a way you know running a construction firm is a lot like running a cooperative we're all in business for ourselves getting five or six disagreeable males to do what you need them to do is uh, quite a, a talent but um i had lots of experience but anyway i we're
0: going to take our first break we'll be sure. right back and we'll finish your story i'm, okay. I'm really interested in here <laughs> we'll be right back please don't touch that dial Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And WL makes a great partner because information is power. But you know, I found out it isn't information. Information is kind of like stored power. You can get the information, but if you don't put it to use, putting it to use is where you get the power. So on this program, we're giving you information about co-ops. And right now, we're talking about worker co-ops so that you may want to start your own co-op. Uh, you may want to get together with three, four, five, six uh, of your friends or coworkers and start your own business. They're normally created to solve some community problem. One person said early on in the program that co-ops are to solve community problems. If you don't have a community problem, there's no need for a co-op. And so right before break, Judith Turner from St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, through all aspects of the United States, <laughs> he's traveling around. <laughs> Was well, tell us how she got into co-op, so I'd like to hear that story.
2: Okay, so uh, to continue, I'd spent many years in Florida then building my business, and as I was finding success, I was really interested, because I was working more in the office at this point, and I had employees rather than working directly with subcontractors. So I was really interested in how this could be a cooperative and how to get people invested in, in the work as much as I was, and I thought, well, I paid them more, I gave them the schedules they want, but it really didn't seem to get their real True investment, and I wanted to learn more about worker co-ops, but I couldn't find any information. Mm. I started listening to Dr. Richard Wolf on YouTube's and followed his site, and from there I was able to find more and more resources. And in Ricardo's uh, organization uh, was one of them. But I started reading, and I, you know, when you find yourself up at three a.m. reading IRS case law on the efficiency <laughs> of <laughs> worker co-ops, you know you have fallen off the cliff. And I attended a developer training. In, uh, with Cooperation Works, and it was the first leg of training. And when I came back, um, I had been uh, talking a lot around town and had been going to a lot of community organizations. And there was, a, there was one group that did a survey, and there were, they had 1,400 surveys of people asking for a grocery co op, a community owned grocery co op. And pe- politicians were calling me asking me about co ops. So I thought, well, there's a real chance to establish something in this town. If you love co ops, this could be a good place to be. There was a need. There was an absolute need. So um, I decided to establish the uh, development center. I thought about converting the construction company to a worker-owned, but I thought at this stage of my career I could do more to establish a development center and help other people grow lots of different types of cooperatives.
0: So you went from constructing buildings to constructing businesses?
2: I say, yeah, I want to build co-ops. I'm not interested in building buildings. People are always asking me, build my house. I'm like, no, I'll build you a (laughs) co-op. Not doing it. All right. Thank you so much. Mm Maria, how
0: did you get into co-op?
3: Yeah, you know, similarly to Ricardo, my um, my starting co-op started abroad. I was living and working on a yeah. permaculture farm in Nicaragua. What kind of farm? Permaculture. Okay. It's a type of um, ecological design methodology that's really about um, enhancing the Uh, the beneficial aspects of relationships of how things how systems interrelate and so that was in a design intensive at that time Um, and I just fell into a design and construction project that was happening in the community center there and helped to build um, a structure for one of the first women's sewing cooperatives in that town and um, much like in Uh, The village that Ricardo was at in Zambia, the women were very much um, underemployed. Uh, The island had about a 90 percent unemployment rate for the women there. And so having something like that was was a pretty big deal. Um, And even the community director ended up saying that that building was the nicest building in Balgway when we were done with it. very uh, heavy on the brick so (laughs) yeah Um, yeah and you know when I came back I just um, started looking for any opportunity to connect design and construction and uh, cooperatives together and ended up working as a a business manager for a general contracting firm in Oakland that's a 10 year old co-op called dig cooperative Uh, they specialize in decentralized water systems so gray water and rainwater Mm -hmm. and then from that I went into landscape cooperative at the time, they weren't a cooperative, and so I actually helped them with the conversion to a co-op. And then, just from that point, I decided I wanted to start my own uh, start my own business, and so started Root Volume in 2017.
0: So, you started the cooperative Root Volume. It I did. You and others, or just
3: yeah, it was me and two founders. Okay. We started together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, what year were you in Nicaragua?
3: That was 2012.
0: So Was a lot of crime there then? That's all I hear about.
3: Oh, you know, there was some. There was definitely some turmoil happening in Managua, which is the um, capital. Um, I was on Ometepe Island at the time, and there were some political issues there. With um, they were trying to build an airport, you know, um, right through some some people's homes at the time. So there was some, you know, resistance going on.
0: So I was just wondering, how did this co-op with these women that had 90 percent unemployment, Mm -hmm. uh, how did that affect crime or, you know, did people overcome this kind of issue there with this business?
3: Mm, You know, it's I think uh, it's sad to say that it's still a persistent issue there. It's um, um, women, like in many Mm -hmm like in many countries, not just uh, developing countries, you know, are typically very economically uh, suppressed and also in educational opportunities as well. Um, and this co-op, from my understanding, is still continuing, um, but is um, still pretty small comparatively to the issues, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I would like to get more into it. I particularly want to go back to Judith so you can talk to us about that youth co-op. That you have to start and you're going to be talking about this weekend in Baltimore at the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy. Yes. So what is that youth have
2: So do you want to start with how it evolved or what yeah, it is in general?
0: What it is in general and then how it evolved.
2: Okay. So in general, a youth co-op is just a cooperatively owned business by youth under the age of 18, or it could be up to 28, <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on how you want to define youth. And a youth co-op is typically fostered by a public institution, so you have a safe space. And it is, and, and so the youth don't have to pay rent. They have the opportunity. They can, they can give back to the institution a percentage of their profits, but they're not under the pressure of paying rent. And they also have a developer and an adult supervisor. But the youth actually own the business, run the business, and get the benefit of learning how to run a business. And if there's money, they get some profit. Oh, usually there's money. Lots of profit. Believe it or not, everybody wants to help the kids. And I tell, we tell our kids now, take advantage of this. Put youth in your name. Because we have some billionaire restaurant owners lining up to give the kids contracts. I say, but as soon as you're 18, they're going to tell you to go <laughs> go do it yourself. But, you know, many people want to help youth. And it's easy for them to to use that uh, in, in a business. To get business. Yeah, yeah to no get thing. business and so ha- how do you get started? So 2 years ago I attended attended uh the Association of Cooperative Educators conference and there La Liga de Cooperativa of Puerto Rico was there presenting and you know being in construction which is heavily occupied by Latinos. They're a part of my, my mainstream everyday life, and it made perfect sense to me to connect with that organization and one of the presenters. So he had indicated that the organization had always kind of was interested in building a bridge to uh, Florida. So La Liga is an organization. They have a law there that every high school has to have a, a youth co-op. And some of these kids you know they have stores their their sales are like seven hundred to a thousand dollars a day so that just told me this is not some kind of after school daycare program. These kids are really running businesses they know what they're doing and they showed third through fifth graders you know running businesses and I thought this is this makes sense to me you know I was building what a baby kind of business. Uh, well, they actually grow a plant, and they infuse it with oil, and then they design their label, and they put it on a little bottle, and they go out and sell it for a quarter or 50 cents at fairs, and and their table will sell out in an hour because everyone wants to help the kids, and they got a good product, you know, and it's, and it's affordable. So it made perfect sense to me to see this program, and I felt like I have to do this. I just have to find a way to bring a youth co-op to Florida because we're housed at Pinellas Technical College, which is still under school board control. So I thought, well, under my roof, there's got to be an open door to get into the school system somehow, some way. But that's not really where our story started. That's not where our first co-op started.
0: Before we get to that, Mm -hmm. I lived five years in Puerto Rico. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I found out about co-ops because I've managed housing co-ops here in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. So that's how I learned about co-ops. I didn't learn about them in my Formal education or anything like that, but in Puerto Rico, uh, the National Association of Housing Co ops had our annual meeting in Puerto Rico one year we had the cabinet there was a cabinet member uh, of the of the uh, governor mm-hmm. uh, on co ops and he came and he said something like seventy five percent of the people in puerto Rico were in five co-ops. They belong to five Mm -hmm. co-ops. And I kind of thought that might be why when I lived in Puerto Rico come election day, it was amazing. I thought there was like uh, a mob outside. They, They had big horns and... Around election, I think they had like 82% of the people would vote compared to like wow. 42 or something here. So their democracy, and I've always wondered when I found out about this, I wonder if it's because of the co-op influence when you talk about the politics of what you talked about at um, Ricardo. You talked about the politics in Zambia and how mm-hmm. people got into politics, and they begin to understand what democracy is and how important the vote is. Okay. Uh, So now we want to go over to Maria and talk about, you said it was three people that started Root Co-op?
3: Yeah, Root Volume. It's three people, yeah.
0: And so how did you get started, and what are you doing, and how's your business now?
3: Yeah, um, we're doing great. You know, we... um Uh, We ended up actually uh, losing a founder, you know, but it was very amicable Um, and we ended up with two founders and we have uh, two other um, two other people that are um, member owners right now and one new candidate that has just started with us. So it's five now? It's five now, yes. Okay. Yeah, and so we have projects lined up through the new year, which is really great. Uh, we're doing work that's really uh, fun and exciting, and we have clients that have just really uh, found us through word of mouth, and that's always the best way to go. Um, a lot of the, you know, we actually incorporated with the support Okay. There is Mendy. Yep.
0: We're gonna come right back and Thanks. find out about that support and how is it going and we're gonna take our second break and we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We give you information about co-ops, how they get started, what the benefits of them. And hopefully you'll take this information, either start a co-op or go out and find one. Like Recreation Equipment uh, has put a superstore in D.C. It's a consumer cooperative to get recreational equipment. And uh, before the break, we were talking to Maria Williford from Root Volume Cooperative out of Oakland, California, who's here this weekend for the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy, which is being there on the Hill this morning, and that's where we're taping from, and on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they're in Baltimore, Maryland. And we'll talk more about that conference later on. But Maria was talking about how they got started. Now they have five members of their worker Cooperative. So you want to continue telling us about your co-op?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I want to say that, you know, in the co-op community, there's often a lot of support that is given, you know, Um, and especially me not coming from a design background. I started in business. Um, I had a lot of training uh, to do to get into the field that I am. And one of the first uh, trainings that I took was actually with uh, the Sustainable Economy Law Center, and that's how Ricardo and I initially met was at that time in 2015 so I learned a lot of what I know about co-ops from him. Um, Yeah. But Arizmendi is um, our most recent supporter. We're part of the Arizmendi Association of Cooperatives. Um, They are now six bakeries. Um, throughout the bay Area and now um, what of oh, six, bakeries. six bakeries throughout the bay area and they recently ventured out into helping to develop other businesses um, and they do that through a number of ways through um, legal support operational support um, as well as financial support as well um, oftentimes they 'll help start bakeries by um, taking the lease out for the building, getting the equipment, um, running the hiring for the initial worker owners of that bakery. Um, and so they start with the seed funding as well as the the training of all the, the people that are starting the business to really try to set them up for success.
0: I wonder if they've ever thought about or looked at starting a bakery, uh, a worker cooperative, or expanding it into prisons. Because mm. in Italy, they have a Bakery, a worker cooperative that's both in the prisons and outside. So when the prisoners leave, the uh, the prisons they had like only like 5% returning versus something like, I don't know, 70% returning here in the U.S. Because when they leave, they have a family already there. They have a, a community, a business that they're already able to work in so they can make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know how to do the business, uh, and they feel a part of this community, so there's no reason to go back and they have they can go out and, and work and make money. So when you say 6 bakeries I'm going that, mm-hmm. that would be great because they can do the baking in the prison yeah both for the prison and for people on the outside so anyway Maybe yeah, no, that do. that
3: would be such a great idea. You know, I haven't heard them talk about that, but it wouldn't be an unusual model um, in the Bay Area anyways. There's another co-op called Planting Justice, and they help to do um, training for workers, uh, landscape work uh, for prisoners at San Quentin. And they help them with transition uh, to, to transition into working on gardens outside uh, once they're out. So, yeah, that would be yeah,
0: perfect to do. Be awesome. Uh, and maybe there's somebody in the prison that could be a part of your co-op.
3: Absolutely we'd yeah. love it we welcome the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay so now let's go back to Mr. Ricardo. Uh what are some of the kinds of businesses that you've been helping to get started
1: yeah um, so we uh, at the law center provide um, a a few different resources one which uh, Maria mentioned was the worker co-op academy which was a business boot camp um, about uh, three and a half months long that provided um, training and education on all on many different parts of cooperative businesses you know healthy communication because when you're in a cooperative and you're all co-owners you're going to have to be able to communicate communicate well, resolve conflicts. I think like in our existing um, society, we're not trained that way. It's like my oh, way or the bring highway. bring that to D.C.
0: That's why you're on the hill today, right? <laughs> that's
1: right. We're here on D.C., which I want to get into later, too, pol- the policy things that we're, we're moving for, But um, with the actual businesses that we've been supporting, we actually provide um, – what we call the Resilient Communities Legal Cafe. It's we hold it at coffee shops, at community spaces, at cooperatives, where it's first come, first serve legal advice to start nonprofits, social enterprises, cooperatives, and we've served over thirteen hundred um, in the last six years, so in the Bay Area, um, and we've just started doing them virtually. So if folks are listening to this podcast who are based in California or starting a business in California, because that's where we're licensed to provide legal advice, they can um, sign up on our
0: website, um, and so. There's a yeah. group here in D.C. at the University of District of Columbia, the mm-hmm. Clark um, School of Law, mm-hmm. and they have a clinic. They, they've been helping uh, housing co-ops is the way I know them. But I would bet Louise Howe there, an attorney, would be very interested in something like this. Yeah, would be it, nice to hook you guys up.
1: Yeah, and we're actually um, we have a website called cooplaw.org, which is a national resource website for cooperatives. It's it's primarily focused on worker cooperatives, and we're actually creating state by state guides um, to so that when somebody in Texas or somebody in Maryland or someone in DC wants to start a cooperative, they can go to that go to cooplaw.org, find their state page, and see What's the different ways that people have incorporated as a cooperative in that state? What are some sample bylaws or operating agreements? How have you navigated employment law or securities law in that state? Because all of these legal issues of starting a business, running a business, capitalizing a business are all uh, very tricky. And the law has not made it easy for regular people to navigate it. The law has been created to facilitate large companies to pay really expensive attorneys to navigate it and everyone else just has to figure it out and um, really, you know, stumble through it. So we're trying to create those resources for community-based entrepreneurs to, to Co-op navigate law. Yep, cooplaw.org. dot org. Yep. Co-op law right. dot org. Right. Yeah, and so um, some of the cooperatives that um, we're really excited about that we've helped incubate, um, one, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, which is a um, multi-stakeholder cooperative. So you were talking about the different types of cooperatives, producer, worker, Mm -hmm. marketing, consumer. Um, We actually created a cooperative where there's a worker collective, which has a membership class of their voting members of the cooperative. There's also... um, Consumer members, so the residents of the properties that are being bought by the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. Um, and then the, um, we also have uh, investors, so anyone in California can invest up to $1,000 dollars. To help capitalize the the cooperative to purchase properties and basically take them off the speculative market. So
0: are these invest, investors? Are they members and have can vote also? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, they have they have um, their their members <laughs> and they can vote. And another thing about this cooperative, it's not only multi stakeholders for the members. We've actually created a board structure that mandates that three of the seven board seats are voted on by. Particular um, community stakeholders. So we have um, one board seat who is elected by a. We have a. We have for um, a
0: worker collective and one
1: by the filmers. Well, yeah, those are the member classes. They all get a vote on boards, but we also have three board seats that are for basically it's a movement cooperative. So tied to different movements um, in different communities. So. There's um, one specifically that is representing the Black community. So in, in Oakland, we've had, um, I believe, 70% of the Black Black population um, of Oakland be displaced over the last 10 to 15 years because of gentrification. So we want to make sure that there's representation from the Black community on the board, talking to the board um, to really set the direction of the cooperative to make sure that we're not exacerbating this gentrification and displacement that's happening in the East Bay. So we're actually trying to figure out different governance structures to incorporate not only the members, but other community stakeholders as well. Um, and that's a lot of the work that the Law Center does, is trying to figure out how do we navigate the law and create these long-term institutions for long-term transformation.
0: That's phenomenal. I mean, I've heard of uh, food co-ops being both Worker co-ops and consumer co-ops—a a, mixture—but I've never heard of the third the investor piece. Of it. That would be interesting to look at more of that. <laughs> All right, yeah. so that's one
1: so that's one, yeah, we have a people power solar cooperative, which does um, which is similar uh model and structure. we incubated them at the same time, but this one uh, also has a worker collective um, that is running the cooperative and you know sort of being the backbone of the organization, and they install solar um, solar arrays on uh community level um like apartment buildings and schools and those types of things as well so those are two examples and then some of the other exciting things that we're working on are conversion so right now there's uh, this thing called the silver tsunami where uh, you have baby boomers who are nearing retirement age and only about seven to twelve percent of um, of Business owners have a succession plan. So that means about 85 to 93% of business owners who are baby boomers actually don't have a plan. And so what typically happens to a business is it will close or it'll sell to the highest bidder. And many times the highest bidder just wants the customer sheet or um, they just want the assets of the company and then they close it down. And so what we're really advocating for here today um, on Capitol Hill, um, as well as work that we're doing around the country, is to find ways to support um, outreach, education, and training to existing um, business owners to sell to their employees so that the businesses can become employee-owned, worker co-ops, stay rooted in the community, and keep that community culture. And um, really just it's a win-win for, for everyone. So that's that's another big part of our work right
0: now that's exciting. Do you have any sense of, in this silver tsunami which mm-hmm. i'm a part of mm-hmm. uh how many businesses um small businesses are owned by this group of people millions
1: i know um there's just one um statistic i have in front of me right now which is um what was it oh that uh two two point three million companies employing one in six workers nationwide um or close to 25 million people across the country or forty, about forty-two thousand businesses. Um, that's the number of businesses that are right now ready for either sale or closure or getting ready to figure out what to do when
0: when the owners retire. So I have heard these numbers at the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so in Cincinnati, they it's coming up. They have every two years. sometime in November. They're having their conference. And I heard those numbers there uh, about the the first time I heard the silver tsunami. Um, And the whole idea is to get conversions happening so the employees can take over the business, they stay in the community, the money stays in the community or if, if it had gone out before, now is in the community and build this community. And it's the first time I really understand this multiplier effect. Mm. If money stays in the community, let's talk about that in most in particular African American communities, it would like be one time. Yeah. Make the money and then go outside the community and spend it. Where when the when folks are in the community then they spend the money in the community whether it's going to the grocery store or going to get their hair done mm-hmm. hair hair did <laughs> uh, whatever the case may be And yeah. that money turns over and then it, it just builds the economic wealth of the the whole community yeah, and this is what co-ops do
1: yeah it's like uh, like a pinball game like if it's an outside company then you shoot the ball once and it goes into the to the hole and that's it. But if it's a locally owned business, it's like a pinball machine where the it, ball it is just going. There. It just stays in there and it's hitting all the points. I and got it. Yeah, just kind of moving around
0: and and creating community wealth. Phenomenal, phenomenal. What uh, I wanted to go back to, Airs Mende. You mentioned that name. What is that name? How did that name come about? Do you know?
3: Um. Yeah, I do. It was. Um, <laughs> I. I really should know the story about like the father. <laughs> that if you want to pass him. it over? I would love <laughs> to
0: pass, pass <laughs> it over. Go <laughs> <it> right ahead. <laughs> okay, Ricardo. Yeah, you have a minute.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. So, Father Um Mendi was a father in the Basque region of Spain during the Franco dictatorship and started a school for entrepreneurs. He was really trying to find ways to start. Um to bring the Catholic social justice teaching into practice and so helped start a worker cooperative that eventually became the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, which has over 500 companies um, there's 73,000 worker owners, um, and it's really a model that a lot of people around the around the world are inspired by. And Erasmeni Association in the Bay Area, the bakeries was one of the one of the groups that were inspired by Father Arismendi, um and helped start these bakeries. So that Maria
0: is now a part of. So uh, I have I have a picture of him riding his bicycle in this little town. And yes. <laughs> there was 90 percent unemployment of some high number after mm-hmm. this war. And it was, you know, uh, and it was in a dirt road. And now they have their own bank. They have their own college. They have their own schools. They have all of this. And during this last downturn, nobody was laid off. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though a company went out of business, yeah. the other companies hired the employees mm-hmm. and people took. Breaks. They took 10% salary reduction so that everybody could stay employed. That's why co ops work so well and why I love them. And we're going to take our final break and we'll be right back.
2: 1450
0: WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oakes, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, you know, this program is being brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank. NCB mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they've been doing this since uh, the 80s. They've been doing a great job of it. Uh, When you start talking about low-income communities, that's where you find a lot of black and brown folks, not with 90 percent unemployment, as Maria found in Nicaragua or in the tribes of Zambia and when they go out in the tribes and the villages uh, with huge unemployment, particularly for women, Um, but there's higher unemployment uh, in black and brown communities. And the other big issue is um, I've seen numbers around like Cincinnati – Cleveland Uh, inside in the suburbs of Cleveland, the um, death rate, how long one Mm -hmm. expects to live was 10 times higher than inside Cleveland Mm -hmm. so that if you live in certain zip codes, low income communities, you don't get the health that you need. You don't have the income that you need. You don't have the wealth that you need to get the, (laughs) the health that you need. And so all of this all of this wraps around this sense that people will die early live a worse life and die early and co-ops is one of the answers so Judas let's can you talk about that a bit?
2: Uh, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, that's per- that's precisely the issue we're dealing with in St. Petersburg, Florida, in South St. Pete. We are a classic tale of two cities. We have a flourishing downtown, mm. and we have uh, food deserts all over the s- south area where the surveys were taken asking for a grocery store after two big box uh, stores used up their subsidies and closed Close. up shop and left. So that's when people started asking for co- a co-op. It's been 900 days. So we now have a nutritionist that is talking to us that works for a local hospital that has patients that are from this area and telling us precisely that, that they are dying younger, they're walking in with heart disease because they don't have access to nutrient dense food. So, and, and they don't have the income to even get a car to go outside of the area. We have the lowest car ownership in in all of St. Petersburg. Uh, so the wealth has just been extracted from this area. And as far as getting back to the multiplier, uh, food co-ops actually have a multiplier that's 24 cents higher than a traditional grocery store. And I've looked at a feasibility study for our area where we want to open our food co-op, which is community-owned, not we grown, but... Um, Uh, That it it, it actually equated to almost a million dollars a month leaving our our neighborhood. So just if we bring in a food co-op and we build it, we would have an additional million dollars a month floating around, which contributes to everyone's bottom line. And then they can afford to see doctors and they can afford to get health care. But absolutely, the the health effect is, is a big one.
0: It is huge. And that's why you guys are on the Hill today to talk about some of this. So, Ricardo, what are some of the things that you want to get accomplished, and who do you want to see today?
1: Yeah, we're going to see a lot of representatives today um, and, their, and their staff, and what we're trying to accomplish today is really, I think, um, and I've heard you talk about it on past episodes where one of the biggest hurdles for cooperatives in the United States is that just people don't know they exist. And so, um, one of the things that we're doing is to build awareness, um, around cooperatives and the cooperative model and specifically worker cooperatives on the Hill today. Um, but this is also a, um, follow up to really, uh, some, some landmark legislation that passed last year. Um, I believe it was last year, um, the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, which was the first federal legislation to support um, democratic employee ownership and actually have the word worker cooperative in any federal legislation in the history of the United States. So that passed last year, and part of it was directing the um, SBA, the Small Business Administration, to find ways to make lending to worker cooperatives um, easier. Yeah, uh, I know that um, for a lot of businesses, when you go to find a loan, they're going to ask for a personal guarantee. And a personal guarantee is when somebody puts up their own individual personal collateral, like their house or their car or something like that, to get the loan. And well, you don't have a lot of wealth in the neighborhood that's to do right. that. Yeah, you don't that. have a lot of wealth. And when you're at 12, 15, 30 worker owners, not everybody's going to want to do a personal guarantee. So, um, so it's finding ways to figure out, how, okay, how can we protect the lenders, but also how can we meet this model this worker cooperative model where it's at um and so right now there's some uh, national legislation that's following up from the main street employee ownership act that um is called the national worker cooperative development act it's being worked on by rocana a representative from um, the south bay in the san francisco area and really it is targeting um a lot of the the um that people don't know about worker cooperatives. So it's looking to create more resources around the country for worker cooperatives. It's looking to um, release some funding to cooperative development centers. Um, it's, uh, what was it? There's already um, there's already a, a rural cooperative development grant program that's been running for years, and so we want to model something off of that, that program towards worker cooperatives. It's also looking to um, make it Create some more tax incentives because, as we've seen in the past, tax incentives will actually release a lot of floodgates. So when we, when they, um, may the whole nonprofit industry in the United States can really be tied back to um, creating more tax exemption, um, raising the cap on tax exemptions to nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And so, with um, cooperative conversions, we're looking to really to um, create some tax incentives for the selling owners to um, give them some tax incentive to sell from the capital gains tax. Well, they have they it would. for ESOPs. They have it for ESOPs. Um, but some of the restrictions around the, um, uh 1042 rollover, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if we're going to get into the weeds. Um, there, some of the mechanisms and, like, restrictions around the rollover make it difficult for worker cooperative conversions, um, particularly if you're going um, to sell uh, to, if it's an LLC, a limited liability company, or if it's a cooperative corporation, or a um, not a C corporation, if it's an S corporation, all of these things. So when you get into the nitty-gritty of the existing, um... Uh, rollover, over um, it can be difficult for a lot of companies to to get that incentive that capital gains okay. tax exemption um, from the sale so what we 're trying to do is broaden it for worker cooperatives so it 's easier for sellers to see that capital gains tax exemption um, and really incentivize the um, the growth of worker worker cooperatives around the country so that 's a lot of what we 're trying to do today is is get these i get the cooperative uh, model in front of legislators and to, to let them know that there's this act that's, um, that's being worked on that they should uh, be in support of, and also that um, the um, co- Congressional Cooperative Business Caucus is being restarted with the help of NCBA-CLUSA, and so for representatives to join that as well as that gets started next year um, to really build awareness and uh, national legislation around cooperatives of all kinds.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's great. Now I needed you to tell me. You know, when you get into weeds, sometimes it gets to be like, I don't know, deer in the
1: yes. headlight with the eyes and stuff.
0: Like, <laughs> I've
1: done enough legal trainings where at some points I'm like, I lost you. Okay.
2: <laughs>
0: but it's so so absolutely important for it to be clear. Mm-hmm. If you do this conversion, not only will they buy your business so you'll get some money you don't have to close it down and people lose their jobs Mm -hmm. so you'll get some money but you can also get this tax incentive for doing it also Mm -hmm. that could be the boost that caused this to happen okay anybody else want to add anything to what you're doing on the hill maria or judith okay so now let's talk about the conference in 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 baltimore this weekend we have a few more minutes left. So what are you doing this weekend in Baltimore? And where can people, if they want to go to this conference, where would they go and how would they do it?
1: Yeah, sure. The um, the conference happens every other year, um, so on um, odd years. Uh, we have conferences on the East and West Coast. So this is the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy. We had our Western Worker Co-op Conference um, a few months ago, and it's a place for really um, worker owners and uh, developers to come together to share resources, to share stories. We already heard um, from Judith the story about that she first learned about this model um, that she's replicating at a conference, and so that's that's some of what
0: we do. Um, and so, so this is this is. Mm-hmm. Principle number five of mm-hmm. education, training, and information. Yeah. And what I like about co-ops too. I, I've taught twelve years, and then mostly in the capitalistic model, people hold on to knowledge yes. because of competition. But in the co-op world, and in principle six is cooperation among co-ops people give information, share information, lovely and caringly. So that's what I hear you saying happens here at this conference.
1: Yeah, and that's that's what's going to happen this weekend. And it's going to be at the uh, Baltimore School, uh, University of Baltimore School of Law. And if folks want to know more about it, they can go to conference.coop and click on the link for the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy and uh, see all the information there. So it'll be a fun weekend. Um, and that's the thing about these, these uh, worker co-op conferences. They're actually fun. They're like enjoyable spaces. They're meant to be participatory and engaging. Um, and it's really a lot of relationships
0: are built that are that are quite beautiful. Thank you, guys. So you can go to conference.coop. Uh, I, won't, I don't have time to ask you if you like what you do, and I got <laughs> that you love it. <laughs> but I would like to take the last minute just to give a shout-out to... Congressman Elijah Cummings. He mm-hmm. passed away this morning, early hours, and that's a great loss for the city of Baltimore and our country. He was born and raised in Baltimore, uh, where he resided. Uh, he dedicated his life of service, and this is what co-ops do too: uh, service. And uh, he, his service was uplifting and empowering the people he is. He was sworn to represent. And I would have liked to have gotten to him to tell him about co ops if he did not know about them. And I think he would have embraced co ops. But I like one of the, his motto is that our children are living messages that we send to a future we will never see. And this is why I like what you're doing, uh, Judith, in schools, that our children are the living message. That we send to the future. So you're sending all of these kids with all of these youth co ops uh, into the future, and we will never see that future that they have. Thank you guys so much for being on. Uh, Everybody out there, we will see you next week, and please live cooperatively. 1450 WOL.